you know, I, I have mixed feelings personally about ballot measures. I think they can oversimplify things because you can say, do you want to cut taxes? Yes. Do you want more money for schools? Yes. And they don't have the same sort of trade-offs that you have in the legislative process. Well, welcome back to The Public Money Pod, a production of the Center for Municipal Finance at the University of Chicago's Harris School of Public Policy. And of course, we are proudly sponsored by the Government Finance Officers Association, MuniPro, Odyssey Advisors, and Build America Mutual. I'm Justin Marlowe, joined as always by my intrepid colleague, Liz Farmer. We are here for a special episode to do a wrap-up of the 2023 November elections. Something we did last year, really important to focus on this in the public money context. These quote-unquote off-year elections don't often get as much attention as the on-year elections. However, there's lots of really important state and local public finance stuff that is often on the ballot during these off-year elections, and this year is no exception. Lots of interesting ballot measures around wealth taxes, marijuana taxes, selling railroads, all kinds of exciting things. And so we want to take a few minutes and go through that, see what sorts of themes emerged, see what we ought to be thinking about as we go into the rest of this year and into next year. And we have for a family meeting style conversation about this, probably the best person we could have to talk about state and local elections. And that is Alan Greenblatt, reporter from Governing, a place that Liz and I both have history. Liz especially has history with. Alan, thanks so much for taking the time to uh, join us here on the Public Money Pod. Yeah, it's good to be with you. Thanks a lot. Yeah, always good to always good to see a friendly face. Um, I'd like to focus first on some of the the tax related ballot measures that were that were out in in a small handful of states. Before we kind of get into details on those, do you want to tell us if, uh, were there any surprises for you in, in any of those results? I would say no. The biggest one, of course, is Texas. Uh, they approved a massive property tax cut approved by the legislature this year, uh, $18 billion. Not a shock that Texas voters would support a tax cut. And in the ballot measures, I, I didn't feel like there were any any shockers. I guess the Colorado had this proposition HH, which a little bit sounds like hemorrhoid cream. <laughs> <laughs> Us, but it was it was also a property tax cut, but it was uh, a very complicated measure, which yeah. I guess we could get into about reformulating how the state refunds taxes under their Tabor law, et cetera, et cetera. Anyway, that that law. So maybe that was more of a surprise uh, that was backed by Governor uh, Jared Polis in Colorado and, and a lot of the legislative leadership, but they just were not able to sell it. Let's get into that a little bit more. Um, so it was so Colorado has taper, which it's like a revenue cap, and when the state exceeds its cap, voters get a refund. This proposition would have had some of that money, some of that refund money instead. I'm really, really simplifying this, <laughs> going to uh, what local schools to help fund a property tax cut, right? So the end result for voters is they is property tax cut, but in exchange for getting a lower Tabor refund in the years that that goes into effect. Is that is that a fair summation? Yeah, I mean, you can see just in the way you're trying to describe it, how confusing <laughs> were. There were, um, you know, it was very much opposed by some of the conservative think tanks and anti-tax groups. And Tabor, you know, which is sort of an acronym for Taxpayer Bill of Rights, I mean, you've written about this in the past, I know, um, like say it caps um, revenue growth to basically 
population growth and inflation. And so Colorado being a growth state, they often exceed that and people are used to getting tax refunds. And when politicians say, well, let us just use this money for good purpose, like schools, voters are skeptical. They're worried about losing their tape refunds. Although interestingly, Colorado voters did approve a, um, a little amendment to Tabor Proposition II, which is, I guess, the naval Proposition II, sir, um, <laughs> that that did pass. So that was um, the, the amount of uh, nicotine taxes are exceeding the Tabor caps, but the proposition says the state can keep that money and spend it on early childhood education. So, you know, there you had like a sin tax, which is always more popular with voters to, to tax sins, well, you know, gambling, uh, cigarettes, whatever. There they were willing to say, well, we don't need a refund on the cigarette tax, basically. Uh, but anyway, in, in, on the on the bigger one, the Proposition HH, property taxes there, they felt like the state was going to meddle with their refunds and they didn't want it. Now, the politicians in Colorado face this big problem where property taxes are set to soar due to rising property values. So, you know, as much as 30 percent uh, increases. So might see a special session on that. Uh, Republicans certainly calling for that, but we'll see. You know, probably deal with it next year, I would guess. Just to go back to the that Texas measure that you mentioned, uh, tell us a little bit more about that. When you think about tax relief from the state to local level, this one seems sort of consistent with what we've seen in the past, but also different in some ways. Well, so this was a very contentious issue throughout the session in Texas. I mean, the, Texas began the year with a massive surplus in Governor Greg Abbott, a Republican, promised to return a big share of it in the form of um, property tax cuts. And the state Senate and the governor had one formula for changing the taxes, and the state House had a different formula. And they really look like at times they might not get it through, but I believe it was in a special session they finally basically got the House to go along. I mean, of course, it was amended, et cetera, et cetera. So I'm not, I don't claim to be a big expert on but the the gist is it's an 18 billion dollar cut it, it it's a change in the homestead exemption and anyway so voters under Texas law voters had to ratify this this change and and they did uh, so it's a it's it's an enormous enormous tax cut and the there was another tax related ballot measure in Texas the the ban on a wealth tax in a state that currently does not tax income <laughs> So, <laughs> which, <laughs> but you know, to, if it if it ever decides to, then there will there will not be a wealth tax. Can we get into that a little bit? I mean, what do you make of of that one? Because there were other proposals, I guess, on the city level in Santa Fe and Cincinnati, also that kind of targeted taxes on the wealthy. So, what do, what do you what's your takeaway from those results? You know, you a little bit mock Texas for banning something that doesn't exist. There is no wealth tax in Texas. <laughs> Or said we're not going to have one, but they did the same thing four years ago. Texas, famously, I guess, does not have a personal income tax, and four years ago, voters voted to ban income taxes. Right. <laughs> um, so it's a um, prophylactic measure uh, in a way, you know. So there are actually differences between wealth taxes and taxing the rich, right? Mm -hmm. Because mm -hmm. they sound alike. A wealth tax is a tax not on income but on wealth which may be unrealized capital gains or even things like yachts and so forth. And these are controversial taxes, something Elizabeth Warren as a presidential candidate talked about a lot. We should 
tax the wealth because rich people often are not earning salaries. They have this wealth, but until they convert it into cash, it gets into all kinds of legal and political and constitutional issues. Having said all that, I mean, Massachusetts voters last year did, I think it was called a fair share amendment, and it was um, a tax on on wealth. Um, well, a tax on income, but it was a millionaire tax, basically. So anyway, and since then, a number of states, mostly the blue states, which or still where most of the rich people live, have had bills this year saying let's do either a, a tax on millionaires or you know incomes above a million, that kind of thing, or an actual tax on, on wealth. I guess I'm not surprised that in Texas they drew a line in the sand and said, not here, buddy. And then we did have these local measures, like you said. So in Cincinnati, there was a proposal to tax income, and it was very redistributive redistributive tax. Uh, so it would have been an increase in the local income tax to fund affordable housing, which would have been targeted to very low income people. So that was actually rejected. And then in Santa Fe, New Mexico, with all those lovely Adobe style properties, values have gone up so much. So there they did pass an excise tax. It's a local excise tax on the sales of homes you know, that sell for more than a million dollars. So that that did pass. So, you know, it's interesting because often these taxes on the rich, they don't pass. There's there guess what? There's a lot of money up against them often. But there's sort of an innate appeal to them. I mean, mo- mo- many voters will say, "Why shouldn't they pay? I'm getting screwed, etc." And a lot of people have homes that are not worth a million dollars. So in Santa Fe, you could say, hey, my my house is not worth a million dollars. And if it was, I can afford the tax. I don't know. Anyway, so so that one passed. But in general, yeah. I mean, the takeaway is always people don't like taxes, right? No doubt. It was interesting to see those, both of the results that you just mentioned coming immediately on the heels of Jeff Bezos announcing that he's leaving Seattle and moving to Florida. Washington State, of course, put in in place one of the capital gains taxes of the sort that you just described. And it, it was in, what was interesting, it seemed like, that surrounded that was some of the sort of philosophical debate around, okay, so Amazon has been in Washington State for decades, has benefited from all sorts of public investment in infrastructure, in state universities, in other kinds of infrastructure that has really benefited the growth of that business. And now Jeff Bezos leaves. And at the same time, you heard people in Texas in particular saying, it's not that we don't want to invest in those kinds of economic development opportunities. We just think that if it's going to happen, it really needs to happen from the private sector. So the better thing to do is make very clear where we stand, which is private sector investment makes these things happen. And let's not have these lingering questions of whether public investment made a business grow or did not make a business grow. So it raises a really interesting set of philosophical questions and unintentionally, probably the announcement of that move coming right up against these elections really seems to draw some of those contrasting philosophies out in the open, I think, in an interesting way. I mean, blue states and red states are divided on a lot of issues, and we could go down a long list. But there's been this historically this long-standing difference between high tax, high service states and low tax, low service states. And whether if you tax more, you can, like, say, build universities and the like, and have other public investments that pay off in the long run, versus giving people control of their own money and letting them run free. And so, you know, that that's an old argument. And then you you know you sort of always have the point of view that look how much these states are growing because they have 
low taxes, you know, whether it's Texas or North Carolina or Florida, which also PS happen to have warmer weather <laughs> and lower housing costs and so forth versus, you know, California is whatever the fifth largest economy in the world. And there's still more venture capital going to California, New York and Massachusetts. So you can, as with most things, statistical, find things to make your case either way. But yeah, it does draw attention when you do have Bezos moving to Florida or you have Elon Musk moving to Texas or you have California seem to along with an exodus of people during the pandemic was losing Charles Schwab and all these all these different headquarters as well. So yeah, we're not going to solve that argument here. But like I say, it is it is an interesting one. And people do often argue it by anecdote, even though I said, you know, you could shape the statistics how you want. I think people do point to specific examples and say, see, that proves that uh, Texas is the way to go. So getting back to, to syntaxes, we you mentioned them in, in Colorado, that that one was, was approved. Ohio voters voted to legalize marijuana, which also included a tax on, on, on marijuana. Any, I guess, any takeaways from there? And, and so where does this put, that put us now in terms of the states that uh, have fully legalized marijuana and, and are taxing it? Yeah, I'm sorry. I don't know the number off the top of my head, but it's a bunch. Um, <laughs> and I, I live in Missouri, and we did it a couple of years ago, legalized recreational marijuana. There were three different measures. My favorite was there was one that was written in a somewhat confusing way, but basically it meant all the revenues were going to go to this one guy, which I don't know how he got it on the ballot, but you know, it gave me a lot of ideas for my own future. Um, uh, but anyway, the, the sort of more legitimate one passed. And we actually just uh, voted at the local level. So the, the I think the original legalization measure did not set the tax amount, but it could be up to 3%. So then it was up to all localities to pass a 3% tax on marijuana, which were approved. I mean, mm -hmm. we talked about this earlier. People are okay with taxing things that they find discretionary, let's just say. You don't have to drink alcohol. You don't have to smoke cigarettes. You don't have to smoke pot. People are okay with taxing those things as opposed to taxing gasoline or taxing groceries, which are always less popular. So yeah, so not a surprise that Ohio voters approved marijuana legalization those always passed or almost always there have been a couple of exceptions i'm all personally always a little i do feel like there's this philosophical question of how much should the state be profiting from things it's taxing because they're bad for you nominally mm -hmm. you know you certainly have states that are caught in a bind where when smoking rates decline it's bad for their income <laughs> so so anyway but you know this is it doesn't matter what i think these these taxes are are going to happen the uh uh, Ohio legislators are already, and I haven't been following this that closely, but it's my understanding that the legislators are already talking about doing something different with the, the any tax revenue from from marijuana because the legislature, I guess, was was opposed to this whole whole idea, and the voters were not. I guess, first of all, are, are you um, do you know any more about it than I do than than what I just said? And and do you make anything of it? I mean, is this just hot air? Uh, can they really? do something different? Is it even safe to do something kind of different with marijuana tax revenue other than give it to schools and health? I was really struck by comments from legislative leaders like the Senate president when this abortion measure passed. So it, it was, I'm sure everybody knows, a measure to enshrine abortion rights in the state constitution. It was, in fact, it had very expansive language on reproductive freedom. Nevertheless, 
So when the top legislative leader said, this is not the end, we are going to revisit this issue, we are going to protect the unborn, and talked about having future measures or legislation. Um, So we'll see how that plays out. But this has been kind of a trend in the last few years where voters approve ballot measures that legislatures then overturn, or when there's money, they divert the money or you know, don't implement it and so forth. I mean, it everything varies by state, but sometimes measures have to have implementing legislation. Sometimes they're passed as statute and the legislature can just override it by passing a new law. And sometimes they subvert the intent, even when it's a constitutional amendment. Um, maybe the most prominent example is the um, the measure in Florida that passed a few years ago that restored voting rights to felons, which the legislature subsequently enacted a requirement that people could not vote if they had not paid off all of the fines and fees they owed to the state, but then basically refused to give people a sheet saying, here's what you owe. And so a lot of people have not known for sure whether they could vote or not. Anyway, that was sort of a long digression, but this is happening a lot. You know, I I have mixed feelings personally about ballot measures. I think they can oversimplify things in in process terms because you can say, do you want to cut taxes? Yes. Do you want more money for schools? Yes. And they don't have the same sort of trade-offs that you have in the legislative process. And they're often promoted by interest groups. So this the idea that it's the voice of the people you know, it's obviously not a totally holy process in that regard. Having said that, when voters specifically say, we want abortion rights preserved, or whatever the issue is, and the legislature says, we don't care what you want. We in our gerrymandered districts are going to make this move. And often what happens is they will make changes or overturn measures in lame duck sessions immediately after the election. So to the extent voters are angry that their will was subverted, the politicians have a maximum amount of time to write it out before they have to face voters again, hmm. you know, full two years or four years. So anyway, I, I you know, I, I find that an anti little d democratic maneuver, but it does happen and it's happening more. Interesting. Keeping it zoomed out for a moment, thinking about uh, not just the public finance specific types of ballot measures that we saw, but zooming out and looking at some of the trends that you saw in state legislative elections broadly. Anything noteworthy there? Anything that maybe portends some trends we should be thinking about for for public money going forward? Well, I mean, this is not the most important thing, but in both Virginia and New Jersey, which each had legislative elections, uh, tax rebates were sent out to voters days before the election. I mean, that that is the popularity of tax cuts, right? So in Virginia was um, a rebate on income taxes and in New Jersey was a rebate on on property taxes. So that is the power of of taxes politically to pull what is basically a stunt of mailing out checks saying, please thank us for this money by voting on Tuesday. Um, In general, not a surprise that Democrats held on to their majorities in New Jersey. But having said that, there was a lot of talk that Republicans could make gains. They certainly made gains two years ago in legislative elections there. And and Republicans were on offense on a lot of issues in New Jersey, both sort of parental rights and offshore wind farms and all kinds of things. And Democrats seemed a little bit on their heels. And there was, you know, Republicans were talking up the idea that they could take a chamber, which always seemed a little unlikely. But anyway, as it turned out, Democrats gained seat, including what was kind of a sweet revenge victory of beating the state senator named Ed Durr, who had won two years ago, defeating the Senate president, Steve Sweeney. South Jersey is becoming Trumpier and more Republican. 
Republican, but they, they did win. Democrats won back that seat. So and then in Virginia, you had, it was interesting because the Democratic Legislative Campaign Committee had a webinar for reporters the day before the election, and they were kind of downplaying their chances. They said, if we hold one chamber, that's a win for us. But they end up winning both chambers. So that's, you know, obviously clear repudiation for Glenn Youngkin, who's the Republican governor who was elected two years ago, who was very much the public face of the campaign, did a lot of the fundraising for the campaign, helped pick a lot of the uh, candidates in primaries. He was very active in the way governors usually aren't in, in the primaries and got Republicans to get on board with a unified message that they would do a 15-week abortion ban, which they hoped would be more of a compromise choice. But voters weren't having it. So, you know, Democrats won the, the key races in, like I said, both chambers. So, and then, you know, Andy Bashir, the governor of Kentucky was reelected. Uh, not a big surprise. He's been a pretty popular governor. You know, it's kind of an interesting case where the Kentucky legislature can override him with a simple majority. So even though he vetoes bills on, say, transgender issues, it doesn't matter. Those pass. So if you're conservative, you get the legislation you want. And Bashir has been able to come across as just kind of this guy who's doing the job. Mm-hmm. He um, was a sort of friendly face during COVID and with his daily press conferences, it really became Andy to the state. Disasters are a test of executive leadership. And he had done, by all accounts, very well responding to major floods in eastern Kentucky and tornadoes in western Kentucky. So he seemed to be doing the nonpartisan aspects of the job well. Overall, maybe not huge shocks, except if you look at them collectively, it's a little surprising that with Joe Biden's approval rating at 39%, the Democrats won everything they wanted almost. So this year, Democrats did really well in special legislative elections. So when the seat was open in the state house or state Senate, they didn't flip many, but they ran well well ahead of Biden in those districts, like by an average of 7%. So those off-year special legislative elections are about as low turnout an affair as you can get. And Democrats did well. And that that's a signal that the base is interested in voting. Between that and them doing pretty well this year, you know, I'm I think the off year elections do offer some portents for the for the even numbered year elections. It can be overblown because you have such a small sample size and you know, a few hundred votes either way, you'd have a different narrative. Having said all that, I mean, it's clearly was a good showing for Democrats and has to make them a little more optimistic going into 2024 than they've been over the past week or so since the New York Times poll came out showing that Trump was winning five of the six battleground states. I mean, it's a long way. Well, it's a year till till the presidential election. But this this was a good night for, for Democrats. And there were not too many bright spots for Republicans that I found. I mean, you know, here or there, like they won the Suffolk County executive race. They now dominate Long Island, which is a big change from the start of the Biden presidency, you know, but but yeah, certainly Democrats had had more wins in, in the prominent races. Do you see any issues that uh, that we've discussed or that have come up either as ballot measures? So property property tax relief because of rising home prices in a lot of places um, and inflation. I mean, any kind of um, those really economic sticking points that have generated, have been the impetus behind some of these ballot measures. Do you see any of those being big issues in an entire year from now in 2024 for those elections? Please predict the future for us. Yeah, I don't know what tax measures will be on the ballot. I mean, you can certainly count on abortion being on the ballot in more mm-hmm. states. I mean, that's been a winner. Uh, there have been seven ballot questions in the last year and a half. The abortion rights supporters won every time, including, you know, Ohio is a pretty red state now, but also last year in Kentucky and Kansas in Montana. Anyway, there'll be more abortion measures. I, I will confidently predict <laughs> that. 
In terms of tax measures, I'm not sure. I mean, I think taxes are going to be a very interesting issue in legislative sessions in the coming year because it's been a have your cake and eat it too period for legislators over the last couple of years. There's been so much money from the federal government thanks to the various COVID-related assistance programs, um, not to mention the uh, Inflation Reduction Act and the uh, infrastructure bill. So they've had tons of money from Washington and their own revenues were so healthy. That picture has changed. Um, inflation is eating into state budgets as it is for our household budgets. And state tax revenue collections are down uh, and have been consistently down. I think it's the Urban Institute says it's 14 months in a row of declining state taxes. So uh, there will be an election year, an impetus and desire to cut taxes, but the money is tighter than, than it's been. Even on a podcast devoted to these issues, um, I think we have to acknowledge there are other things that may be more resonant in the election, whether it's border security or crime or homelessness or or abortion. People people don't like taxes, but that's not always the top issue. And then certainly in the presidential race, I mean, hey, deficits are great. So <laughs> <laughs> the choices are not as tough at the federal level. Let's let's just let's just be honest about that. <laughs> It's going to take a little while to get over the idea that taxes are not the top of the ballot issue for voters. However, <laughs> we'll, we can we can learn to live with that. <laughs> One thing we we didn't talk about, and I'm just kind of curious if either of you have a response to this. So I know I personally have been watching, going back to Cincinnati for a moment, this issue 22, it was called on the ballot in Cincinnati, to sell the last municipal-owned railroad for, I think it was $1.6 billion dollars put all those dollars into a, into a trust that would then fund infrastructure investments in the city of Cincinnati for some time to come. Uh, it needs to go to the ballot. It passed, I think it was 51.5% or something. So it wasn't an overwhelming show of support, but it was interesting. This got our attention for a lot of different reasons. Like, Because in so many ways, what they're doing here is all the stuff that we teach you to do with respect to capital budgeting, be really transparent, have dedicated revenue sources, not use a one-time big revenue windfall for, uh, this, is, you know, this is one of Liz's seven deadly sins, right? And use, use one-time revenues for, for long-term purposes. From a kind of technical finance perspective, this proposal seemed to kind of get everything right. And it was one of the few times where we've seen a privatization of a, of a big public asset have the proceeds put into something that seems like it is going to generate long-term value. As I understand it, the supporters were well-funded and had a really pretty strong campaign. The opposition, maybe less so. That was interesting, I think, in that it seemed like a win for effective financial management. Maybe we should or maybe we shouldn't see it that way. Reactions from either of you on that? Well, the only thing I would say is I, I was watching that in tandem with the measure in Maine, which was a, what is the opposite of privatization? Publicization? Right. <laughs> The Maine has two main utility companies. There was a measure to take them public or, you know, make the create a public utility that would take over the electricity business in, in Maine. So that lost. Um, hmm. Not surprisingly, the two utility companies spent $40 million defeating that measure. Yeah. The only thing I'll add is, um, is that whenever I hear about privatization of, of public assets, you know, you always get a little nervous because what if the, it just because it's a, a private company doesn't mean it's going to be any better at operating something than than the than the public uh, entity. But the, it was the last municipally owned railroad. Yeah, that's right. And it, Norfolk Southern, who 
bought it has been leasing it for some time. So with respect to, you know, are they a good operator? Uh, what, what can we expect from them? There's a, there's a precedent there. So that seemed maybe to smooth things over, smooth any of those sort of concerns about what are we going to get if we do this? Mm-hmm. Yeah. Yeah. I just, I think it's interesting. I, to be honest, I did not know that there even was a railroad that was owned by, by a municipality left in the country. <laughs> so I think that's, yep. that's something too. <laughs> it's time to clean out the basement. <laughs> and not, yeah. And, and not, not anymore after last night. So we, <laughs> uh, now, now an uh, extinct species. Well, thank you so much, Alan Greenblatt from governing for taking the time to, unpack election 2023 and what it means for state and local public money. We really appreciate you giving us some time today. My pleasure. And thanks for caring about state and local governments. Thanks again to our season two sponsors, Build America Mutual, MuniPro, Odyssey Advisors, and the Government Finance Officers Association. Public Money Pod is a production of the Center for Municipal Finance at the University of Chicago's Harris School of Public Policy, where we are proudly produced by Hannah Burnick. You can learn more about the center and its work at munifinance.uchicago.edu. That's munifinance.uchicago.edu. You can learn more about Liz Farmer's work at her substack, Long Story Short. That's Long Story Short. Thanks again for listening. We'll catch you next time on the Public Money Pod.